turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where we're going to be tonight. If you have Psalm, what? I know. Hey, if you've been with us over the past several months, we have been going, doing a uh, series through First and Second Samuel. And uh, by the way, if, if I sound weird, uh, I'm, I'm getting over being sick. I'm not sick currently, but I'm getting over being sick. So there's, there's a tendency for me to sound like Charlie Brown's teacher. For those of you who have seen Charlie Brown, like, <laughs> so uh, roll with me. Be patient with me tonight. Uh, uh, thank you. Somebody's like, you don't. Uh, I appreciate that. But hey, Psalm 51, uh, if you've been with us, we've been going through a series uh, in First and Second Samuel. We've been really, we've been seeing these incredible, just the incredible story of God's faithfulness. Uh, we started all the way back looking at Samuel, and then we went through uh, the, the, the reign and the life of Saul, and then we started to see into the life of David. And really over the past several weeks, over the past few weeks, we've been really honing in uh, on a particular event in the, in the life of David. You know, uh, whenever the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart, uh, and, and we see that, man, like out of, there's 150 Psalms and it, David is credited with writing about 75 of them, right? So maybe we see, man, like David is such, a, such an iconic figure in scripture and we see all this, just these amazing things. But one thing that we know about David's life is that David's life was really, it was, that had some really high highs and really low lows, right? That David's life could be one that is really, I would say, it could be defined as a life that is filled with hills and valleys, and over the past couple of weeks, we've been really looking at a valley in David's life. We've been looking at a, a, a valley that he has brought on himself. We looked at the sin that he committed against uh, Bathsheba uh, by taking advantage of his position, by uh, sleeping with her, getting her pregnant, ultimately killing her husband so that he could cover up his sin. And then it's just this terrible thing. And two weeks ago, we saw how this temptation, right, how, how temptation and sin take root in the life of a person. And then last week, we saw the story of the passage where Nathan confronts David in his sin. So if you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, I encourage you to go listen to those messages. You can listen to those on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. You can go on YouTube and listen to it there. Uh, but really, we've been kind of seeing this, 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 this trend in David's life. This trend that's going on really not in his life, but in this instance, that we see this, this season that David's walking through, a season that is ultimately brought on by himself and his own sin and his temptation, seeing how do we, what do we do with this? And when we read this passage, when we see this event take place in David's life, man, what do we do with this? Right, what do we do with this type of thing? Ultimately, we see that after David is confronted by Nathan, we're going to see ultimately tonight, we're going to read Psalm 51, which is David's cry, his prayer of repentance. David's prayer of repentance. So here's the thing. While you and I may have never done specifically what David has done, right? I don't think there's anybody in this room who's ever murdered anybody which is good, right? While you, may, you and I maybe have never done exactly what David has done, all of us can relate to this idea. All of us can relate to what it feels like to struggle and to carry the shame and the guilt of our sins. Every person in this room, what are the, uh, that, we could, that we can all relate with, this is one of the, the struggles of the Christian life. One of the, the, the things that all Christians have in common is there is a great struggle with sin, there's a great struggle when it comes to coming to grip with the reality of our sinfulness. I talked about this last week, but the number one thing that makes the gospel offensive is when we have to address sin. 
right? It's not offensive to tell somebody that Jesus loves them. It's not offensive to talk, to tell people how Jesus died for them, but it is offensive to tell somebody that Jesus had to die for them because of their sin, right? So often we try to soften the gospel by avoiding the bad news, but what we're going to see tonight is that if we don't spend the past two weeks looking at the bad news of sin, then the good news of repentance and restoration with God is not truly good news. Does this make sense? That if you don't have the bad news of our sinfulness, then you don't really have the good news of the gospel. See, the the difficult part of this reality for the Christian is that you never cease to be aware of your sinfulness. I think this is something that I, that I want you, all of us to really understand, that as long as you live in this world, as long as you live in this world, and as long as you are a Christian, one thing you're going to find is that you are constantly going to be wrestling with your sinful nature, wrestling against the sin of... wrestling. And I want you to understand that wrestling against sin is one of the truest marks of being a Christian. A lot of times we get this idea that, man, a mature Christian is somebody who doesn't sin anymore, or, 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 the, or an immature Christian is someone who does sin. And, and while I understand what people are trying to say when they say that, I think what you really see biblically is this, is that the mark of a true Christian is that they are increasingly aware of just how sinful they are. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is not that one is sinful, one is not. The difference is what do you do with your sin? Right? Last week we talked about what, what does it look like for, you, for us to confront people in sin and to be confronted in sin. This week what we're going to see in, da- in David's life through Psalm 51 is what does it look like? What do we do with our sin? Once we've been confronted with our sin, what do we do with it? Maybe you're in this room and this is where you find yourself. Maybe there's, there are certain sins in your life. There are certain things that you know are going on. There, there, are, there are things that you look at you know you shouldn't look at. There's addictions that you have. There's, there's things that you've done in your past where there's a singular event and, you, and it weighs heavy on your mind. And the question we have to ask is what do we do with our sin, with our shame, with our guilt? Here's something that I think is important for us to understand. We're going to see this tonight. That confession of sin to God is a gift and it brings relief and comfort to the true Christian. Now, confessing sin, while it is difficult and it's hard, I think what we need to remember is that confessing sin to God is a gift, and it brings relief and comfort to the true Christian. See, many of us see confession as a burden. You see confession as something that we try to avoid. And I believe the reason we do this is because we have a misunderstanding of what it is. We have a misunderstanding of God's grace. We have a misunderstanding of God's forgiveness. Tonight we're going to look at David's confession and his plea for forgiveness and see the beautiful joy that we have in confessing our sins to God. So this is the question that we kind of go into tonight. If I'm a Christian, how should I respond to my sin? There's three aspects of the Christian response to sin that we're going to see tonight. The first one is this, conviction. first one is Conviction. In John 16, Jesus gives this profound statement to his disciples. If you, if you know just kind of the way that the book, the Gospel of John is broken down, uh, chapter 13 is really where you see this, uh, Jesus kind of has this, this, like the Last Supper, he washes his disciples' feet, and, and then ultimately, as you keep on going from 13 to 17, it's, the, it's Jesus leaving the upper room, headed to the Mount of Olives, getting ready to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's giving these final remarks to his disciples. 
This is the last moments that Jesus will have with his disciples, ultimately before he is arrested and crucified. And the statements that he gives to his disciples in these, few, in these few chapters are so precious for us to grab hold of and to understand. In John 16, Jesus says this, verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I want us to just process what Jesus is saying here. Right? Jesus here is talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And what he is saying to his disciples is that it is to your benefit that I go, because if I do not go, then the helper cannot come. Ultimately, Jesus is saying this. It is better to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to be walking temporarily with Jesus on the earth. And I want to ask you this. Do you see yourself as more blessed than the disciples? That you are filled with the Holy Spirit. He's telling his disciples that it's better for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit than to, for them to be walking with Jesus in the flesh. We see this that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, is a gift to the Christian. Then Jesus is going to go on, and, and we're going to get to Psalm 51, so just hang with me. But Jesus is going to go on. He'll explain one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit. He'll say, and when he comes, he will do what? He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What Jesus is saying, man, this, the Holy Spirit is, is a gift. It is a blessing. It's to your advantage that I go. For if I do not go, then the helper will not come. It is, it's better for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the primary role of the Holy Spirit that Jesus says here in this passage is the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to convict them of sin. It's to convict them of their sin. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is a gift to be cherished. A gift is, it, he, he is a gift to be cherished. So what can we conclude? We can conclude this, that the conviction of sin is a gift of God that we should cherish rather than run from. That when we are convicted of our sin, we should not run from that conviction. We should embrace that conviction and be thankful for it. Now, before we continue, I want us to read Psalm 51. Remember, this is David after he's been confronted by Nathan. He's confessed his sin, and now he prays this prayer of repentance. So if you have your Bibles, or if you don't, it's on the screen. I encourage you guys to stand with me as we read Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in, in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, would not, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Go ahead and grab a seat. So there's a lot in this passage. But we remember that what we just talked about, that conviction of sin is a gift of God. It's something that is to be cherished. Burke Parsons put it this way. He says, conviction of sin is one of God's greatest gifts. So we understand this. We need to know what is conviction? I get this question a lot. What's the difference between conviction and guilt? What is conviction of sin? Well, biblically, the word conviction literally means to prove something to be wrong. So to bring something to the light so that it cannot be denied. That's ultimately what we talk about conviction. It is to bring something to the light to where it cannot be denied. So we talk about conviction of sin. What we're talking about is this, is that it is an awareness. It is the, when the Holy Spirit exposes our sin to the point to where it cannot be denied. But here's the question. Who is this sin being exposed to in the life of the believer? Ultimately, it's being exposed to the person. It's being exposed to the sinner. It's being exposed to you and to me. So we talk about the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. What it means is this, that the Holy Spirit is making you and I aware of our sinfulness to the point that we cannot deny it. The sin is being exposed to the one who has committed the sin. To be convicted of the Holy Spirit is to be led by the Holy Spirit to a point where you stand face to face with the reality of your sinfulness. And I want you to understand something, that this is the first part of coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. And I want you guys to know that tonight, like the tonight is a night, I need you to be, I need you to be focused on me, okay? Don't, don't, don't be talking and laughing, and this is, this is important. But what we're seeing here is that ultimately that when you get to a point where the first thing, if you, if you, I want you to know this, if you have never come to a point where you have stood face to face with the reality that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness, I want you to know you are not a Christian. I, I want you to understand that. Like, this isn't to, to uh, if you've never come to the realization that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness for your sins, you are not a Christian. So the first response of a Christian is an acknowledgement of the, and the, an awareness of their sin. This is why in the, what we ended with last week when Nathan confronts David in his sin. What does David say? David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. Notice that Nathan does not convict David. Nathan does not convict David. All Nathan does is point out that sin has taken place. Nathan presents the evidence, and it is up to the Holy Spirit to convict and bring acknowledgement. Understand this. As Christians, we do not deny that we sin. This is what a lot of people who are not Christians or outside the church, they, I think they have a, a misunderstanding. And I, because, I think it's because we misrepresent the gospel oftentimes as Christians. We misrepresent the gospel as Christians. But ultimately what we see is that 
Like we, we're, as Christians, we don't deny the fact that we have sin. First John 1 John 1.8 says if this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Why? Because the primary role of the Holy Spirit is to make us aware of our sin. So if you are not aware of any sin, that you, if, you, if you say, I do not have any sin, that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is not within you, which means that you are not a Christian. Do you see how this works? This is like Christianity 101. We see conviction of sin all throughout Psalm 51. Verse 3, David says this, My sin is ever before me. Now there's a few ways we can look at this. Often, what is accompanied with conviction, uh, I want you to see this, what's accompanied with conviction oftentimes is brokenness over it. So when we we sin, when when the Holy Spirit makes us aware of our sins, true conviction ultimately, oftentimes, will lead us to the fact we will be broken and saddened because we have sinned. Right? When you're made aware of sin, there's a sadness that accompanies it. I think of a doctor who goes in and gives a diagnosis of cancer to a patient. And that doctor walks in and says, Mr. and Mrs., you know, whatever. Or, and he tells him, like, hey, like, hey, it's cancer. Like, that diagnosis, that diagnosis of cancer is something that it brings sadness and it brings a a broken heart. The emotions of such a diagnosis run deep because the patient understands the gravity of the situation. Likewise, the mature Christian understands that the diagnosis of sin is far more serious than that of cancer. That the diagnosis of sin is far more serious than a diagnosis of cancer. And because of this diagnosis, it brings sadness to the Christian. This is why David says in Psalm 51, verse 17, it says, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That true brokenness over our sin, true conviction when we're made aware of our sin, it will make us broken over it. Now you're probably thinking, man, a constant awareness of my sin that leads me to feel broken and saddened, how is this a beautiful gift? How is this something that I should receive with joy? Here's, how you rece- Here's why this is something that you should receive with joy. Right? Let's go back to the idea of the doctor giving the diagnosis of cancer. Let's go back to this idea. If the patient does not have an awareness that they have cancer, what will happen? What will happen? They will die. The cancer will run its course, and the person will die. Now, let's say that the doctor knows that this person has cancer, but they're like, man, they're going to be so upset when I tell them this that I just, I can't say it. Or they say, no, I don't want to tell this person they have cancer because I love them. I love them, so I don't want to tell them they have cancer. Here's what I want you to understand. It is not loving for that doctor to withhold that diagnosis. If anything, it's unethical. And if anything, it will get him removed from his practice of being a doctor. He has a responsibility to tell that patient that they have cancer. Because if the patient does not feel the brokenness of the diagnosis, they will never take the steps for the treatment. Likewise, if you are never broken over your sin, you will never go to God in repentance. Sometimes here, I want you to, I I mean this with all my heart. What some of us in this room need I'm being deadly serious here. Some of us, before we ever consider, man, our prayer life and all these things, some of us in this room, we just need to be broken over our sin. Are you, 
ever saddened over the fact that you have sinned against God? See, it's because God makes us aware of our diagnosis as of sinners. This is something we should be joyful because what if we didn't know? What if we were never given this diagnosis? What if we were never convicted of our sins? We would ultimately die in our sins and spend eternity away from him. You see, it's the awareness and the brokenness over sin that leads the sinner to the treatment of their sin, and that being the blood of Jesus. See, conviction is not designed to lead to shame. This is the difference between guilt and conviction. Conviction is not designed to lead you to shame. It is designed to lead you to confession and repentance. That's the difference. And ultimately, the devil knows this. If you read scripture, one of the, the names for Satan is the accuser. Why? Because here's what will happen. The Holy Spirit convicts and brings sin into the light. And Satan will then take that conviction and seek to use it as a tool to accuse you and heap shame on you. And there's, I, there's two ways that the devil will work. He will either, one, blind you to the reality that you are a sinner so that you will feel there's no need for me to repent of my sins. Or, he will shed so much light on your sins, or, he will, or when you are made aware of your sins, he will accuse you and heap shame on you and say, see, you'll never, you could ne- God would never want you, or God could never forgive you, or all of these. And what he will do is ultimately make you feel like repentance is out of reach for you. I want you to understand, both of them are lies. Both of them are lies. The Holy Spirit brings awareness of our sins, and with this awareness, the Christian is broken over their sins, which leads them to our second point, confession. Which is really, now we can really start to get into the passage. David is aware of his sin. We get to Psalm 51, where he confesses his sin, and the same is true for us. See, as you grow in your relationship with God, you'll become increasingly aware of your sin, and increasingly more appreciative of God's grace. See, naturally, a confession of sin should be a regular practice amongst Christians. And I'm not talking about confession like you go into a booth and you speak to a priest. I'm talking about a regular, everyday, confessing our sins to God, confessing our sins to one another. We talked about this last week. Scripture demands that we continually confess our sins to God. 1 John 1, 9, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, now as we look at David's confession here, we're going to see three things. There's three aspects to biblical confession. The first thing is this, understanding God. Having an understanding of God. Let's go into verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David opens his prayer straightforward and honest. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O God. You see, the beauty of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction of sin is that it forces us to stop trying to justify it. Stop trying to justify your sin. If you go to God and, and, and you say, God, I know this happened, but this made me do it, or this or this, that's not confession. That's not biblical repentance. 
That's seeking to justify yourself and justify your sin. When ultimately, what we need to do is all we can do, when you truly see the reality of our sin, all you can do is fall before God and say, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. See, many of us, rather than be confronted in our sin, we just seek to justify ourselves. But David is at the end of justification. He has carried the weight of this sin for too long. We talked about this last week. That it's been almost, we, we've, it's been w- well over nine months at this point that David has carried the weight and the guilt of his, and the shame of this sin. And now all he can do is fall on his knees before God and say, have mercy on me. David doesn't stand before God and give his side of the story. He doesn't try to soften up what he has done. He simply cries out for mercy. Here's the question. Why do you think he did this? Why do you think David did this? I believe David is left to cry out for mercy because he understands that it is all he can do in the face of a holy God and the reality of his sinfulness. You see, David understood something that we need to understand, that a proper view of confession comes from a proper view of God. If you see God as high, holy, and just, then you understand that there is no explanation to justify our sin. There's nothing I can say that makes my sin lesser in God's eyes. You see, sin is sin because God is God. That's something I think is important for us to know. That the reason sin is so bad is because God is so good. If God were not holy and just, then sin wouldn't be a problem. But the greatest issue we face as humans is that God is eternally just and righteous and we are completely wicked and sinful. That is the greatest dilemma of all of Scripture. That is what Scripture seeks to provide the answer for from Genesis 3 all the way to the end. And I've had a lot of people ask me questions over the years about sin or, 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 or many questions, uh, and many of the questions go like this. Or, and there are oftentimes questions that I've asked myself. They say, like, hey, is it a sin to blank? Or is blank a sin? I believe part of the reason we ask these questions is because in some, way, in some way or another, we have a lack of understanding of who God is and God's holiness. See, if you take seriously what it means for God to be holy, set apart, righteous, and pure, that will probably answer, for the most part, what is and what isn't sin. You take the things in your life, you compare it to the holiness of God, and you realize, man, there's a lot, we're a lot more sinful than we realize. Psalm 50, this is right before this, God, tells, God says that you make the mistake in thinking that I am like you. See, our lack of understanding of God is what leads us to lack of understanding of our sin. All, under, all sin is best understood when we understand God's first. So when we talk about sharing the gospel with people, we don't start out by saying, hey, you're a sinner. You're not going to win a whole lot of friends and influence people that way. You know what we do? is We talk about God. We talk about who God is. How God is perfect. God, how God is righteous and all of these things. And once we have painted a proper picture of who God is, then we start to shed light on who we are and our sin. David asks for mercy, but we need to see what he is appealing to. He is, it says, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. See, what is he appealing to? He's asking for mercy, but what is the basis for him asking this mercy? He appeals to God's love and God's mercy. He doesn't appeal to his good works. Think of all the things that David could have said. God, remember when I slayed Goliath? 
God, forgive me because I slayed Goliath. Forgive me because there was that time where I could have killed Saul in the cave, but I didn't. You remember that? I worked up some good enough. I've got, you know, forgive me because of that. Forgive me because I trusted you in all of these difficult circumstances. No, 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 no. He says, forgive me according to your steadfast love and your mercy. I want you to know this, guys, that just because I'm on a platform with a microphone, just because I preach, just because I'm a pastor in a church, does not mean that I'm saved any differently than you are. I am saved the same way that David is saved, the same way that you are saved, according to God's love and his mercy. That's it. David does not appeal to his track record. He appeals to the character of God. See, there's nothing within us that causes God to owe us forgiveness. He forgives because he loves. Exodus 34, 6-7, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. See, God is abounding in love and abounding in mercy towards you. Do you here's the thing, do you believe that? Do you believe, even in the midst of your sin, when you have fallen flat on your face and you feel shame and regret, do you believe that God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy towards you? That there's no amount of sin that you have committed that is greater than the love God has for you and the greater than the mercy God has for you. I heard one quote the other day that said this, is that if, if, our, if our sin was as much as the hairs on our head, then God's mercy is as much as the stars in the sky. His mercy never runs out for you. Lamentations 3. Not a whole lot of people spend time reading Lamentations Lamentations 3 has one of the most popular verses in the Bible. It says, His mercies are new every morning. Now, when you feel like you've used up all of God's grace today, you know what's so beautiful is that tomorrow morning there's new mercies for you. Now, this doesn't mean that we take advantage and we abuse God's grace. What this means is that we don't run and we don't hide in our shame, but that we are thankful for God's mercy. See, we have confidence that God can forgive, not because we have a low view of our sins, but because we have a high view of God. That's how I know God forgives me, because I have a high view of who God is. See, when we sin, we don't try to convince God to forgive us. We confess our sins to him, knowing that he, that he has forgiven us, based not on our own efforts, but strictly based on him. Remember that God is just against sin, but we can't forget that he is loving and merciful. God desires to forgive you. If you're in this room and you're struggling with sin, struggling with shame or, or, or whatever it may be, understand that like God desires to forgive you. If you have an imbalanced view of who God is, then you're going to struggle to confess your sins to him. So we see that True confession has a right understanding of God. The second part is this, it has a right understanding of sin. Verse, verses 2 Starting in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Because David has a correct understanding of God, it leads him to humbly cry out for mercy, but it also allows him to have a proper understanding of his sin. He says, I know my transgressions. 
I know my sin. It is ever before me. Now, this could mean a few things, but ultimately what we see is that, like, as you go on, is that David is, there's consequences for his sins. We talked about this last week. And the evidence of his sin is ever before him. So David's like, look, I know I have sinned. It, it, it's, it, the evidence is around me all, all over the place. But here's what I want you to also remember, is that don't confuse the consequences of sin as a lack of God's forgiveness for your sin. It would be very easy to allow our circumstances to define God to us. And this is why we have to know who God is. See, sin has lasting effects, and just because those consequences remain, that does not mean that God has not forgiven you. Verse 4, David says, Against you and against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We talked about this last week, but only uh, when I first read this, my first thought is, well, David, that's not exactly true. But he says, against you and against you only have I sinned. That's, man, that's a, that's a bold statement. Like, you've sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against your own wife. You, you sinned against uh, Bathsheba's father. You sinned against the nation of Israel. You sinned against all of these different people. Like, you sinned against the kingdom. You know, 1 Corinthians 6 says when you commit sexual, uh, sexual immorality, you sin against your own body. But God says, but David says, no, like, against God have I sinned. And that's what we need to remember, too, is that first and foremost, our sin is against God. And remember, when we have a high view of God, then what does that do? That has, help, helps us to have a high and serious understanding of our sin. Because the, when we talk about why is it that one sin is so detrimental, it's not because of what you have done. It is who you have done it against. One sin against the high, eternal, holy king of the universe is very, very serious. Right? I've given this illustration a million times. I'm going to say it again. Because there's some of you that I bet haven't heard it. And if three of you haven't heard it, it's worth saying again. If you came up on the stage, took the microphone out of my hand, and you punched me in the face, that's a problem. You may not be welcome back. I don't know. You know, if you're an adult, I'll probably punch you back, right? But that's ultimately where it ends. If Mike Hawkins, one of our leaders, guy at the church, if he was on duty in his Seminole County Sheriff's deputy uniform, and you walked up and punched him in the face, you're going to jail. If you were to go to Washington, D.C. and gain access to the White House, you find the President of the United States and punch the President of the United States in the face, you're going to be dead. What is the difference? It is not what you have done. It is who you have done it against. How much more severe when we consider sin against God? When we have a high view of God, it helps us to take seriously what it means for us to be sinners. When I properly understand God, it causes me to run to him and not run away from him. It's not something to joke about. It's not something that we should take lightly. Because I have a right view of God, because I know that he is abounding in steadfast love, and he is merciful, and, and he is loving, and he desires to forgive me, when I see the seriousness of this sin, man, I should just run to him because I know that there's no one else who can take care of it. See, a right understanding of God, a right understanding of sin, the last thing is a right understanding of self. 
Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we have this line. It's, a, it's, it's an important line, but, but we need to understand that what David is not saying here is that God is at fault. He's not saying, God, I was born this way, so it's just natural that I'm going to do this. No, that's not what he's saying. What David is doing here is David is acknowledging that the sin that he has is it goes deeper than just what he has done. It goes deeper. It goes so deep that it gets into who he actually is. Again, I talked about this last week. Right? That you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner by nature. This is what you do. Same for me. And this is why when we talk about needing to repent of our sins, be forgiven, we need to be forgiven of who we are by nature, not strictly what we have done. This is why David talks about cleanse me, purify me, make me new. Because who I am, who I am apart from you is just wicked and evil. God, I need you to make me new. This is why when Scripture says that whoever's in Christ is a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. Man, this is good news. That I don't need to be forgiven strictly for what I have done. I need to be forgiven for who I have been. This is why when Jesus says in John chapter 3 that you must be born again. This is why when people talk about the sins that are so common and popular today, and they're like, well, I was born this way. I bet there are people in this room who feel this. That there are sins and temptations in your life, and, 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 and you live with what you know the Bible says, but then what culture says. You're like, man, I was born with these desires. I, what am I supposed to do? And you know what? I totally understand that. All of us are born with sinful desires. What you and I need is not... What you and I need is we need to be born again through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I truly believe that God is powerful enough to overcome any sinful desire you have. David makes it clear. He's born with a natural inclination for sin, but he doesn't use that as an excuse. He uses it as a reason to deepen his repentance, which brings us to our last point. We have conviction, we have confession. Last thing is repentance. See that many of us misunderstand repentance. We think of repentance as confession. Right? You're like, well, how are you going to say you have a point on confession, then a point on repentance? I want you to know that confession is a part of repentance, but confession is not repentance. For instance, a bike seat is a part of a bike, but it's not the bike. Like, you can't have a bike without the seat but the bike seat is not the whole bike. Likewise, you cannot have repentance without confession, but confession alone is not repentance. Throughout the remainder of this psalm, which we don't have time to get into, but David speaks of a deeper cleansing and a changing of himself. Notice how the psalm takes a drastic change in its tone. David is now speaking of changing of himself and a future life of glorifying God and all of these. What is it? It's like, man, now take, well, he goes, God, once you've forgiven me of these sins, uh, use me to, to make you known and to glorify you and all these different things. See, the word repent, when we see this word uh, repentance in Scripture, it has what it literally in the Greek means is it's a changing of one's mind. 
In particular, it's a changing of one's mind in, con- in consideration to sin and to righteousness, meaning this, that you are changing your mind about your views of sin and changing your mind toward about your views of righteousness, to hate the sin that you once loved and to love the God whom you once hated. This is what repentance is. And what we need to know is that repentance is not, I'm sorry, God. Repentance is twofold. It is confessing sin, and it is turning from sin. And I want you to know that you can confess sin in a moment, but you will turn from sin the rest of your life. This is why the Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. This is why also we don't say, oh yeah, I've repented, like it's a flu shot, like I did that, I'm good. No, it's we continually repent. We continually go to God with our sins. We are continually living a lifestyle of repentance. And while our repentance may not be perfect, while, you will never, while we may never perfectly turn away from our sins, you know what's so beautiful about our relationship with Jesus is that our repentance may not be perfect, but his grace always is. His grace always is. Know this, you are not saved because you are perfect at repenting. You're saved because God is a perfect Savior. And God will take imperfect repentance and turn it into perfect salvation. And that's the beauty of the gospel. True repentance is marked by a change moving forward. It is a changing of thinking of sin and holiness that becomes manifested in the things that you do. See, when we sin, we're convicted of our sins. The Holy Spirit makes us aware of the reality that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. That conviction leads us to confess our sins to God. And through that confession, we repent and we rely more on His mercy, more on His grace, and more on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to turn from that sin and live a life that helps us to glorify God. And you know what is so beautiful? Going back to that verse in 1 John. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've probably heard there's a word. It's a big word. But that word imputation, right? That when Jesus was on the cross, your sin and my sin was imputed. It was, it, was a, it was credited to Jesus. That when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died on the cross as the sinner that you and I are. But theologians will call something called double imputation, which means this, is that yes, Jesus was crucified, Jesus suffered as the sinner that you are, but then you are imputed now with his righteousness. Meaning this, is that when God looks at you, even now, if you are a Christian, you've placed your faith in Jesus, and as you struggle with sin, and you may feel shame and regret and guilt for things that you did before you walked through those doors, know this, that when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you as a half-baked version of what he's trying to make you into be. That when he looks at you, he sees you as clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, he sees you as perfect he sees you as his child he sees you as that's one that I died for and that should bring freedom that should bring joy that we shouldn't walk around miserable all the time if you have nothing to be happy about in your life be happy that when God looks at you he sees you as righteous 
That's something that nothing in this world can take. And I'll be honest, maybe there's someone in this room that you, you don't have that assurance. That when you stand before God, you stand before Him as blameless. I want to invite you to know what that is. I want to invite you to place your faith. Not like David, when David was saying like, he didn't, he didn't depend on his past achievements of slaying a Goliath. He didn't depend on his past faithfulness of he didn't kill Saul when he could have. No, he depended only on God's mercy and his grace. And like David, man, stop trying to earn salvation. Stop trying to run from your shame, but fall at the feet of Jesus and say, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. And here's what I promise you. I could promise you this based on the authority of God's word, is that no one who comes to Jesus with a true repent, repentant heart, no one is ever turned away. Anybody who wants to be saved can be saved. 